Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week, I spoke with Dr Patricia Ranald from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network about the recent in-principle free trade agreement announced during Scott Morrison's recent visit to the UK. We'll talk about some of the concerns raised by the announcement and the lack of transparency surrounding the agreement. But first, some union news. This week, Yahoo reported that the 13 Darwin Wharfies forced into COVID-19 quarantine at Howard Springs after allegedly unloading a foreign ship without adequate personal protective equipment will remain in isolation. Their employer, a stevedoring company, Lynx Cargo Care Group, attempted to win the 13 men's release in the Northern Territory local court, where it is challenging Chief Health Officer Hugh Heggie's order. But their application was rejected last Friday, the 18th of June, by Judge John Neal, who said he was satisfied Dr Heggie had made the correct decision. The group was directed to do 14 days mandatory supervised quarantine after allegedly unloading the Tacoma Trader cargo vessel, which sailed from Singapore on June 5th, without using the correct PPE. Lynx lawyer Sanjo Tan told the court it was the first time during the pandemic that port workers had been made to endure quarantine and separation from their families for doing their job. He said there were other options available, such as home isolation, and the stevedores were complying with their employers' safety procedures. There was no change in their processes for 13 months, he said. But Dr Heggie said he'd never been made aware wharf workers were unloading foreign ships without following the NT's health directions. My main concern was that the stevedores were at risk because they didn't have face masks, he said. Dr Heggie told the court that despite the port workers not coming into direct contact with the ship's crew, there was still a risk they could have been infected. This could have occurred if the crew was infected and stevedores touched surfaces on the Tacoma. Independent COVID testing of the ship's crew on Thursday found it was not infected with the virus. Mr Heggie's lawyer, Tom Anderson, said his client was obliged to take a risk-averse approach to secure public health. We're talking about a serious public health risk, he said. The economic risk to this community of a COVID outbreak could be in millions of dollars as it has been in other jurisdictions, he said. If we get COVID in the Territory, in vulnerable communities, there could be deaths. Mr Anderson said Mr Heggie was an expert and he had not made an error when he ordered the men into quarantine. Judge Neal agreed and dismissed Lynx's application to have its employees released from quarantine early. The Chief Health Officer has a very heavy responsibility that will most often put in place restrictions that will go far further than 2020 hindsight will reveal were necessary, he said. There was a practice of stevedores of Lynx Company that their staff, when they went on a ship to unload, would wear protective gear appropriate to the nature of their work, but that did not include face masks. Outside court, Sarah Smith, whose husband Matthew is one of the stevedores forced into quarantine, said the ship's crew left Singapore two weeks ago and none of the crew had been found to be COVID positive. So if they're not infected, why can't the men now be released? It's ridiculous, she said. 
Commercial vessels entering into the NT from international waters are processed by Australian Border Force and the Australian Department of Agriculture and are subject to the COVID-19 border arrival conditions. The Tacoma sailed from Darwin on Thursday, bound for Port Hedland in Western Australia, where it's set to unload more cargo containers. The Fair Work Commission revealed on Wednesday, June 16th, that the national minimum wage will rise 2.5% to $772.60 per week, or $20.33 an hour, meaning Australia's lowest paid workers will receive an $18.80 a week wage increase. Sectors still under pressure from coronavirus restrictions will have the increase delayed beyond July 1. More than 2 million people are on award rates of minimum pay for their industry, while almost 200,000 receive the national base wage. The Morrison government warned against a major increase, arguing it could dampen employment in small business during the coronavirus pandemic. But unions pushed for a 3.5% increase, which would have seen minimum wage workers receive an extra $26 a week. The Australian Industry Group urged the Commission to limit its increase to 1.1% or $8.29 a week. The national minimum wage increased by 1.75% to $753.80 a week or $19.84 an hour after last year's review, but the rise was delayed at least three months for most workers. Food delivery riders protested outside New South Wales Parliament on Wednesday, June 16th over tough new laws to monitor, target and fine riders in police blitzes while companies like Uber and Deliveroo are let off the hook for exploitation and deadly pressures. In April, the Transport Workers Union and riders withdrew from the New South Wales Government Task Force over the continued silencing of riders' concerns about exploitation, unrealistic time pressures and the need for regulation to provide workers with minimum pay and protections. Riders are today asking the New South Wales Government to call off the hounds. Blaming and targeting riders over the symptoms of dangerous exploitation will only exacerbate the pressures they face. Riders are speaking from experience when they say fines will force them to rush, work longer hours and ultimately take more risks. The statistics are alarming. Three in every four riders are buying unsafe bikes and helmets because they can't afford the safer alternatives. Plying riders with fines is clearly not going to solve this problem, but will certainly make it a lot worse. The New South Wales government has taken a leap backwards, but it can still fix this mess. All it will take is standing up to tech giants and putting in place a tribunal to give riders the minimum pay, rights and protections they desperately need, said TWU National Secretary Michael Caine at the protest on Wednesday. Food delivery companies are facing court challenges around the world and in Australia over their sham business models. In December, Uber rushed to settle an unfair dismissal case with delivery driver Amita Gupta after federal court judges savaged its business model. Last month, delivery rider Diego Franco won an unfair dismissal case after he was sacked for being too slow. A 2020 TWU rider survey revealed food delivery riders earn as little as $5 per delivery. 70% of the riders say they are struggling to pay bills and buy food. And more than one in three has been injured on the job, with the vast majority, or 80%, receiving no support from their company. Two Indigenous men from Arnhem Land have made an official complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission. The complaint alleges voter suppression is taking place throughout remote regions of Australia, 
through indirect discrimination by the Australian Electoral Commission, or AEC. The complaints backed by the Maritime Union of Australia, MUA, and the United Workers' Union, UWU, are concerned that the AEC is substantially undermining the voting rights and power of Indigenous people. The MUA and the UWU stand against discrimination and racism wherever it may occur, and these unions have a long history of supporting the struggle of Indigenous peoples for rights and equality. MUA National Indigenous Officer Thomas Mayer said, It is alarming that the AEC has adopted a policy that systematically reduces the voting power of Indigenous people at federal elections, the people who have the direst need to be heard in this country. The AEC must urgently change this discriminatory policy so that Indigenous people are better able to reach a ballot box during elections, and so they are no longer turned away at the ballot box en masse. Complainant Matthew Ryan, Mayor of the West Arnhem Council, said all forms of discrimination must stop. The AEC needs to take rapid action to enrol the third of Indigenous people in the NT who are not able to vote. Complainant Ross Mandi, Chairman of the Yalu in Gullawinku, said, I've worked on elections for years. There's always people turning up who are not able to vote. If the AEC did its job properly, this could stop right now. UWU Aboriginal and Torres Strait organiser Wayne Kernow said, Our members in Aboriginal communities like Ross Mundy need every opportunity to be heard. These communities have been left behind because politicians just don't care. It is the AEC's role to make sure Aboriginal people have their say. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. The UK-Australia Free Trade Agreement has been negotiated in secret for almost a year, and the legal text of the agreement still has not been released, with the only detail about the deal coming from Prime Ministers Morrison and Johnson. There is no publicly available detail on what protections there will be against exploitation of workers through the visa system. Unlike the UK, Australia has no independent approval process for trade agreements. It also appears that the Morrison government has done a deal with big agricultural employers to replace labour from the working holiday visa program with even more access to vulnerable workers from ASEAN countries. The Australian Workers' Union, who represents workers in the agricultural industry, says the Morrison government's proposal is a disgrace. Scott Morrison and Boris Johnson have decided it's wrong for Brits to be exposed to exploitation and abuse on farms, but apparently it's okay with Southeast Asians, AWU National Secretary Daniel Walton said. Britain rightly wanted to scrap the 88-day requirement to work on Australian farms because they recognised their citizens were being exploited and abused. Southeast Asian workers lured into the country under the new arrangement will be even more vulnerable than the British backpackers they replace, given the additional challenges most are likely to face in terms of language and economic desperation. Mr Walton said Agriculture Minister David Littleproud had already acknowledged the new visa was designed to enable exploitation by removing meagre protections in the existing Pacific Labour Scheme. He also condemned Mr Littleproud's claim that the changes were necessary because Australians can't be incentivised to have a crack at these jobs. 
That's absolute garbage, he said. Everyday Australians, including thousands of AWU members, get up to work in jobs that are just as tough and arduous as fruit picking. The difference is they have access to Australian standards of pay and Australian working rights. I spoke with Dr Patricia Ranald from AFTINET about these concerns. I'm Dr Patricia Ranald and I'm the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. AFTINET's a network of 60 community organisations that includes um, unions, environment groups, public health, uh, aid and development and other community organisations that uh, it campaigns for a more just trade system for fair trade based on human rights, labour rights and environmental sustainability so that we evaluate and educate people about the global trading system and about trade agreements that Australia enters right. into. There's been a lot of secrecy around this free trade deal between the UK and Australia. And after initial uncertainty, it was revealed that there will not be provisions for investor state dispute settlement. Uh, can you tell us what that actually is? Like, and why, why is this a win that that's not a part of this agreement? Well, um, investor state dispute settlement or ISDS is essentially about the rights of international corporations to be able to sue governments for millions and sometimes billions of dollars if they can argue that a change that the government makes to law or policy will harm their investment. Now, the best known example of this in Australia is when the Philip Morris Tobacco Company tried to sue Australia for billions of dollars because we passed our plain packaging law, which was a um, a health public health measure. We've been campaigning against having this right in trade agreements for a long time. It's not needed. It's an extra optional extra, if you like, that gives special rights to corporations. There is a separate dispute process in trade agreements, which is called state-to-state disputes, and that's the normal way in all trade agreements that complaints are resolved, that one government will make a complaint about another government. But to give individual corporations special rights to sue governments is really giving them extra legal rights that they don't need because they already have enormous market power. The full details of the agreement will not be released until after the agreement has been signed. Don't we have a right to know what we're signing up for? Like, Yes, well, well certainly we've, we've argued for the last 20 years that there should be a much more open democratic process for trade agreements. At the moment, the negotiations are secret and we don't see the full text of the agreement until after it's signed. Even conservative bodies like the Productivity Commission have argued that this is not a a process which results in the best trade agreements because if nobody knows what's in them, there's no chance um, for all of the different groups in society to have a, a say and, of course, after it's been signed, it's very difficult to change it. So... Um, it seems like not a very democratic process. That's right. Yeah. In fact, um, last year we managed to get an inquiry, and this is the third inquiry into the trade agreement process after, over the last 15 years. Is that um, a parliamentary inquiry? Or? Yes, yeah. parliamentary inquiry by the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties. Mm. And um, a lot of submissions were made... Um, 
again, many by community organisations, but some by business groups arguing for a more open and transparent process. But that committee has not yet reported. And um, we suspect that the, gov the government, which has a majority on the committee, is delaying the report because um, they received so much evidence that suggested they should open up the process more and they don't want to open it up more uh, under this government. Yeah, and... There's an interesting uh, flow-on effect from the changes in the youth mobility scheme. Under 35s from the UK will no longer have to undertake regional work to extend their visas. And, uh, yeah, then the Nationals have announced that workers from Southeast Asia will be offered a new farm work visa to make up for the shortfall of workers. It's a bit of a symptom of... The exploitation of these workers, I think. Um, we've had numerous academic investigations and media exposés of the exploitation of, they're called working holiday visa workers, um, who um, go and work mainly in the horticultural, picking fruit and, and um, vegetables and so on. And the reason they're vulnerable to exploitation is they're on a temporary visa, they're tied to one employer and they can be deported or their visa can be restricted if they don't conform to what the employer wants. So they're much more vulnerable to exploitation than either permanent migrants or um, people who've been here for a long time because yeah. normally if you're treated badly by your employer, you can leave and get another job, not get deported. So they're very vulnerable. And um, I do think that what's happened is that the British working holiday visa holders have um, protested about having to go and work under these conditions. And yeah. so the new agricultural visa is saying, okay, we'll offer these visas to workers from Southeast Asia who might be even more vulnerable to exploitation because many of them, for instance, wouldn't have um, English language skills uh, or knowledge about their rights as workers. Um, so, um, yes, I, I do think that this is a bit of a revelation about how these kinds of agreements for temporary workers, A, shouldn't be in trade agreements at all. They should be separate government-to-government -government agreements. But if they are separate to government-to-government -government agreements, they should have protections against the exploitation of these workers, which they don't have. Yeah. And this is separate from yes, the, this free, free trade agreement. It's actually yeah. been announced by um, David Littleproud. And um, it's something that farmers have wanted for quite a while. Yes. Uh, and it will be a series of government-to-government -government agreements with the 10 ASEAN countries. So it includes Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Vietnam and so on. Hmm. And the concept of temporary workers coming to Australia... It should be based solely on areas where there's a genuine labour shortage. Yes. Those, those agreements should be government-to-government -government agreements which actually protect the rights of workers. And the problem is that um, those sorts of agreements haven't done that. Um, and there is, in fact, a, um, a set of agreements with the Pacific Islands um, yeah workers and because those agreements were made as separate government-to-government -government agreements and they were made originally under a Labor government and unions had some voice in those agreements, there are better protections in those agreements for Pacific mm. Island workers. 
migrants who come to Australia. They're not perfect and there's still exploitation, examples of exploitation. But they actually have more rights as workers and the employers have more obligations. Mm. Um, it's interesting that the government has not said, oh, we'll expand the Pacific Island workers' visas, but we'll create a new set of visas, yeah. um, which will, I think, um, mean that the workers under those visas will be more vulnerable and less protected from exploitation. The academic studies show that there's a lot of just simple wage theft and underpayment in these jobs and super exploitation, long hours, no health and safety. So I think if better conditions were offered in these jobs, there'd be more Australian workers willing to take them. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. The RSPCA in the UK has raised concerns about animal welfare because um, laws in Australia and the UK differ. So, for example, battery cages for chickens have been banned in the UK. So advocates want the agreement to maintain high animal welfare standards on imports to the UK. Do you think this could be an opportunity for, you know, some reform here in Australia or will this be an issue? Well, there is going to be a a standalone chapter for the first time in this agreement about those sorts of standards, which the UK RSPCA and environment groups in the UK have fought very hard for. The problem will be how legally binding it is. Um, But, yes, you could see it as opportunity if Australian farmers have to raise their standards of animal welfare in order to export their products to the UK then that could be an opportunity for raising standards. Unfortunately the UK is not a really big market for Australian for you know compared say with the European Union or other markets in in the Asia Pacific region like China or even Indonesia. So I'm not sure how influential that will be, but I think it's a positive step that these issues have been raised and yeah. um, it be an opportunity for Australian farmers to have to meet um, high standards. There's claims from the UK that Australia doesn't meet the standards of in things like levels of hormones in beef or levels of use of um, antibiotics, but I guess that's the sort of thing that will emerge when we actually see the full text yes. of the agreement those sorts of standards are in there. After the agreement's been signed and the text is released, it is reviewed by a parliamentary committee. But the problem is that that committee can't change the text and it only makes recommendations. And then the parliament doesn't get to debate the whole agreement or vote on it. They only vote on the implementing legislation. So if there's some tariffs, for instance, that need to be changed and we need legislation for that, the parliament will vote on that. But normally it doesn't vote on particular chapters like, for instance, um, animal welfare or even investor-state disputes. Yeah. All of that text of agreement is, is um, not voted on by Parliament. But the only hope we have is if we can persuade enough opposition and crossbench um, uh, parliamentarians in the Senate to say no to the agreement. That's quite a difficult ask. Yeah. Um, the government always says, oh, you're holding up this valuable trade agreement which will deliver, you know, cheaper tin tams and whiskey 
to Australian consumers um, in the past when there's been legislation that's been substantial, for instance, with the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement, there had to be some changes to intellectual property law in relation to medicines, for example. Yeah, can you tell us about that? That's relevant to this agreement as well, isn't it? So in the agreement in principle, which was released last Thursday, several days after they made the original announcement, they actually released the words that were in this agreement in principle. It does mention that the UK uh, wants to maintain what it calls its high standards in relation to intellectual property on medicines. Now, pharmaceutical companies already have a 20-year monopoly on all medicines, but the UK has an extra form of monopoly, which is called data protection, which essentially means that when the patent comes to the end of its 20 years, the companies wanting to produce cheaper versions have to get access to the data. So having extra periods of data protection delays the availability of cheaper medicines coming onto the market. Now, Australia does have data protection, but it's only five years and the UK has up to 10 years. So if it turns out that this reference to the UK maintaining its high standards of data protection means that we agree to give 10 years of data protection, that will mean an extra five-year delay uh, in cheaper medicines coming onto the market in Australia. Now, what that will essentially mean, because our medicines are subsidised by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, Um, There have been studies done that show that each year of delay would cost hundreds of millions of dollars for these new medicines because it delays the cheaper version of new medicines coming onto the market. So it essentially means that Australian taxpayers would be paying hundreds of millions of dollars a year to pharmaceutical companies, which could be much better spent elsewhere. They really don't need extra years of monopoly when they've already got the 20 plus the 5. So we are going to be looking very closely at that to see if that's in the agreement. That will certainly be a point of argument about whether the agreement should be passed or at least whether the implementing legislation should be passed through the Senate. The government has learned essentially from that experience with the US Free Trade Agreement not to put anything controversial that needs legislative change through a trade agreement. If they want to have changes, they just put it in the text without legislation where it's about limiting what future governments can do. Yeah, okay. They try and arrange it so they can do the change through regulation rather than having a law that could be approved in the Senate. Of course, this is another weakening of our democratic right to, you know, have our elected representatives actually uh, scrutinise and vote on these agreements. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Dr Patricia Ranald for taking the time to speak with us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 0394198377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.